there is something to discuss in the home province of Newfoundland Labrador. I mean, mm-hmm. Facebook pages, war going on between Newfoundlanders who are in Alberta, saying horrendous things about, you know, their own people back here for going yeah. wildly liberal. And uh, I actually found that quite shocking, really. In my mind, the only kind of clear promise that was made last time in 2015 that was kept was legalization of marijuana. And like, you can't just be the pot party and think you're going to do well forever, right? So instead of talking about the underrepresentation of women, I think it's time to start talking about the overrepresentation of men and the overrepresentation of white people. Um, and I think once we do that, I think that things can change. Academic and the Activist, the space where the halls of academia hit the mean streets of activism. We talk about all things political science, feminism, and fun with your hosts, the academic, Amanda Bittner, and the activist, Jenny Wright. So good early morning from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Amanda. <laughs> I am very happy to talk to you right now. Um, it's uh, it's been a, a crazy few weeks for us all, I think, um, and I'm looking forward to getting my life back to normal. It's really felt abnormal over the last little while, so that's exciting. Yeah, it feels like being in suspended animation. I think for the last two weeks of the election, just waiting for the next shoe to drop. Absolutely. And I mean, for me, it's it's challenging because I love elections like nothing else yeah. in the world. Well, that's not true. There are some things I like more my children, but I like elections <laughs> a lot. And so I can't help myself but follow them super in depth, spending hours and hours every day watching them, thinking about them, talking about them. And honestly, I don't have that much time in my day. And so I'm looking forward to rejigging my schedule in a way that is uh, a bit more balanced. Let's call it self-care. Yeah. I like it. Back to putting your professor researcher hat yeah, on. Yeah, I miss that hat. She's got to come back. <laughs> so I I was so looking forward to talking to you too because I have to say, uh, broad strokes, thinking over the election results, um, I, was, I was shocked. I was not expecting that outcome. And every tra- time you try to do any kind of analysis, it's like, oh, well, this is good, but also bad. Mm. Oh, this is really bad, but kind of good. You know, it's really divided. I don't think any of the parties really would be happy with the result. I know a lot of the media commentators are saying it's a country divided. I don't know necessarily if that is true, but we're going to have uh, one unruly country to try to govern with a minority government mm-hmm. going forward. So you said that it surprised you. What about what about the outcome was so surprising, do you think? Uh, it was a couple of things for me. I really thought that the Bloc and the, or sorry, not the Bloc, the Greens and the NDP were going to do better. Mm. And one of the kind of last minute surges I think was going to happen was that the pollsters were not able to get a handle on the youth vote, of course, because they don't have landlines to phone, right. you know, to get that sense that, you know, in the, in the world of cell phones. And I really felt there was, with the youth momentum, certainly around um, the climate marches, the amount of engagement that, that happened at that level, mm-hmm. that we have this groundswell of the youth vote that we're always talking about, mm-hmm. and then that would push either for the Greens because of climate or for the NDP. And I was waiting for that surge, mm-hmm. and of course it come. Um, you know, the parties, in fact, didn't do very well. The NDP lost seats, which was, uh, to me, surprising considering what I felt Jagmeet Singh had done, had had run a good campaign and it got a lot of momentum in the end. Mm-hmm. I thought the Greens would have. Um, 
you know, one more. They get one historic EOC in Atlantic Canada, but then they have losses in the West. So everything just seems, you know, kind of up and down and hard to read, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion. And um, uh, look, I'm happy for our minority government. I think I think it's time a new way of doing politics. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really surprised. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the this idea of the popular vote. So here we have the Liberals gain, you know, getting uh, 34 more seats mm-hmm. than the Conservatives, but yet the Conservatives got. I think it's 1.5% more votes than the Liberals. So this is our wonky first-past-the-post system that we debunk a lot of the time. So asking the question, how is it that, you know, you can get the popular vote, Mm -hmm. or uh, not necessarily the majority, but a popular vote, um, and not become the next prime minister? And because it's so close... Um, between the Liberals and the Conservatives, um, I thought it'd be really cool to ask you to put your professor hat on. The hat that I've missed now for so long, that that one? That you've missed, that one, put it on. And, uh, you know, I think it's important that this is something that we have trouble understanding under our our current parliamentary Mm -hmm. system, that, you know, if you can give us a brief overview is how is it that you can get you know, the most votes, the most popular vote, but still not make prime minister. Right. This, I mean, this is the classic question, right? And so electoral reform is one of my favorite topics. Um, (laughs) Partly because I like math and I like elections and the two things come together really nicely with electoral reform or electoral systems discussions. Um, But I think that this is one outcome so this this 2019 election where we saw, you know, so I'm looking at the, the breakdown of the vote right now. So we have the Liberal Party getting 157 votes, or sorry, seats, um, with 33% of the popular vote. The Conservatives getting 121 seats with 34% of the popular vote. Um, so close. So close, yep, but different, right? And then the BQ, the Bloc uh, in Quebec getting 32 seats with 7.5% while the NDP gets 24 seats, so that's, you know, six, eight less, with 16% of the votes. Um, and then the Green Party has three seats with almost 7%, so they're kind of tied with the block in terms of popular vote, right? Um, and I think this is one where it's a combination of geography and then also the electoral system, right? So, I mean, we all know that Canada is really big in terms of land mass shall we i'm not a geographer so i'm using the wrong words probably um so it's, it's just a really big country and it's broken up into all these regions and it's broken up into ridings and it's broken up into provinces and parties can use that to their advantage like in the case of the block um, which was able to run a really concentrated campaign in a few ridings and succeed in those ridings because even though they only have, you know, 8% of the popular vote across the country, it's all in Quebec. And so they were able to get that and leverage that success because of the way the geography and electoral system works. Whereas the NDP, which has, you know, pretty much the same, uh, sorry, s- double the popular vote nationally, is not has not been able to concentrate that in regional ways in the same kind of way. Um, and so, you know, historically, nerds like me talk about this combination of the electoral system and geography and the way that parties can exacerbate regional differences. Um, and you can pipeline. see this. Pi- well, pipeline is a big one, right? And if you take a look at the map um, of kind of how how this election turned out across the country and you compare it to previous maps including 2015 including 2011 there's a lot of differences right and so you know the 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 red out east and then the kind of blue in the west with the orange peppered through and the block you know in quebec um it does look at least visually very divided this country right that map was quite shocking the map is pretty yeah it's pretty wild Mm -hmm. um at the same time though are Canadians that divided? I don't know, right? I mean, it, I think that probably the urban-rural divide is one of our biggest divides and one that we don't talk about that, that much, and we probably should. Um, I saw an interesting um, tweet thread this morning about the population size in different ridings and the vote share that different parties received based on population size and ridings. So really small geographic ridings with high populations 
did not vote conservative. Really big ridings with small populations did vote conservative. And so that's just a, a thing about Again, the importance of geography and the way that the system works. So there, I would imagine that there's a lot of folks right now um, who are, you know, mad about the electoral system and probably mad at Trudeau because he said he was going to change it um, last time around, right? So it's had he didn't, it's good thing he didn't because he wouldn't be prime minister right now. Right. Well, and this gets to the cynical part of things, right? A lot of folks argued, you know, Justin, you should not do this. It will not benefit you. Um, and so, you know, so then a lot of folks were then like, well, he didn't do it because it didn't benefit him. Um, and so that's where, you know, a lot of voters who care about that issue are pissed, frankly, really pissed. Um, but a lot of other voters, most Canadians don't care about electoral systems. Most of them don't like math the way I do, for example. Um, and most people don't sit there calculating what might have happened under a different system you know, which let's face it, I've done that. Um, and that's a weird, that's, that's a weird thing to do. Right. Um, so, you know, is there potential for change? Totally. But I think that, you know, there have been a lot of attempts at electoral reform in the country over the last 20, 30 years. Most of them have failed, right? Because people, you know, vote against them. And because they're, I think that we've done a really poor job so far, at least parties have, of identifying the problem. So when you try to go and change the system, what are you trying to change? What are you trying to address? And until you can actually articulate the, the clear problem, voters are not going to be on side with this. And institutions are naturally conservative, right? We, we recreate ourselves and we don't change things usually. And sort of systems beget systems and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I think that so if, if change is desired, there has to be a clear articulation of what the problem is. And I think that folks who want electoral reform are pretty good at articulating what they think the problems are. But governments who initiate electoral reform processes are not good at articulating what they think the problems are. And then therefore, when the time comes that the committee reports, for example, on what they think should happen, they can easily ignore it because like, well, we don't think this is the problem we want to address. And then it's like, well, then why do we just do all this? You know, exactly, exactly. Um, we got to talk about the minority government. Mm -hmm. uh, when has this last happened in Canada? Well, this is not a new thing for us, even in recent past. Right. So the 2000s, the early 2000s, we had a few minority governments um, thinking about Paul Martin's minority government thinking about Stephen Harper's minority government. Um, so, you know, stuff happened. Um, I can't remember what happened during those times in terms of laws that were passed and things like that. But, uh, you know, minority government is not unheard of in Canada, and it's certainly not unheard of around the world. It's a kind of a traditional, classic, normal, quote-unquote, way of governing. Absolutely, certainly in European countries. It, it's funny uh, how the Conservatives were able to kind of... Um, pushed this huge fear of a minority government mm -hmm. once they saw that it was coming down the pipe. I don't know about you, but received a text, you know, are, you know, are you concerned about a minority government that will raise your taxes mm. and prevent, you know, decisions mm -hmm. getting that loaded question? I did like, not oh. get that text. I got no, you know what, I got to say, so this is the one big campaign disappointment for me. Nobody came to my door. Nobody tried to survey me. Nobody sent me a text. I got one mailer that came in my community mailbox, and so nobody came to talk to me at all. And frankly, we know I like to talk. And so this was a major disappointment for me. And surveys. I mean, how much do you love surveys? How much do I love them? We could, I could write a whole poem about surveys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I, I heard that quite a bit, uh, certainly at home uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador, that people said people weren't knocking on the doors. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly, no one knocked on the door here in Halifax, which I thought was really kind of interesting. And our Atlantic provinces basically went red again. Yep. With the exception, you know, Jack and a few exceptions in New Brunswick flipping. But yeah. So do, do we want to talk about the Jack Whale, the Jack um, Harris, Nick Whalen race at all? Do you, is yeah, that... I want to. I want to talk about that. OK. What do you want to say? Anything specific? I have some thoughts on this. Um, mainly, I'm actually surprised that Harris won. I got to be honest. Um, I know that folks were surprised that Nick Whalen won last time, and I was also one of those people that were surprised. And I enjoy being surprised in an election, so that's not really a problem in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, but I genuinely thought, especially I think in I think in St. John's too, there's this concern right now with um, the economy and mm -hmm. this this sort of belief that 
um, you know, we have a big problem here in St. John's and in Newfoundland, Lab- which obviously we do. I think that's not just a belief, it's a fact. Uh, and yeah. so how do, we, how do we solve these problems? Is it done best through collaboration with the federal government? Probably, but can you collaborate with the government that is of a different stripe, political stripe than you? Um, anyway, so I, I genuinely believed, and like the ground game from like what I could see in terms of signage was pretty good. There were signs everywhere, big signs, little signs. And this was pointed out to me all the time by my kids who delighted in the signs. So that was fun. Um, and they were really excited about this election and, you know, wanted to know. And my daughter, even last last week, we were at a concert for my kids' uh, choir. And she asked me while we were in the audience waiting for him to sing. She's like, Mom, who are we going to vote for on Monday? Are we going to vote for Jack Harris or Nick Whalen? And I was thinking to myself, okay, what's happening here? Because we talk about politics at home, but I have never really talked to her about local candidates and kind of what they're doing and never tell her who who I'm going to vote for partly because you know I'm in the media sometimes and I need to be nonpartisan and I'm afraid that she'll tell all of her little friends who I voted for and that they'll <laughs> they'll tell their parents and suddenly I'm no longer nonpartisan obviously I'm a citizen and I vote right um yeah. so I asked her kind of what she thought we should do and and she's like I don't know they just have the most signs and so it was it was cute. And I think that the seven year old because she's seven, the seven year old kind of measure of competitiveness um, had me thinking a lot. So if she thinks those are really the only two candidates in our riding, even though there's other signs, of course, the Green Party sign and then uh, the conservative who was running as well. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a real toss up. And so up until, you know, they called it and I was surprised that it got called so soon, even though, um, you know, they took a while to release the first uh, polls from that that riding um so yeah I'm, I mean I'm I'm I think that they both ran a good game I think that they're you know the, com- the campaign they took seriously both candidates took it really seriously this time in a way that I don't think they did last time um and in both cases last time um and so I think that you know that's great and I, and I a lot of folks were saying on Twitter that they were really complimenting uh Nick Whalen on his uh uh, his speech at the end there where he was congratulating Jack Harris and he was thanking his team and and it was it was a really nice way to kind of go out it was kind it was thoughtful it was generous he was in no way being a douchebag like it was it was great um, and so he, I think that that was a real he, he was kind of a classy thing I mean uh, there's there's canned things that you say when you lose right but it, he seemed genuine about them and so I think that uh, you know kudos to him for that because it can be really hard to be kind in moments when you're losing right I think, um, I mean, I think the issue around Jack is that he is almost seen as, you know, uh, what do they call him? The greatest premier we never had. Yes. Well, he, I mean, he could have run last time for the leadership provincially, and I think he would have won. And I think the NDP would have had more seats in the last provincial election had he been the leader. But uh, I absolutely agree. But now we know why he didn't do that, because he of, was a high Which we knew then, too. But yeah. 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 But I think I think he is seen as the senior parliamentarian, mm-hmm. you know, an orator and a, a, and a solid and steady, uh, you know, representative of and fair representative mm-hmm. of Newfoundland and Labrador. And, you know, he he doesn't have many boo boos or black marks throughout his career. I mean, I think for the youth vote, he's seen as kind of stale but in general i think people look to him as is is kind of an ambassador and as, mm-hmm. as fair um and i think <clears throat> i think for nick he just made a couple of bloopers uh throughout his time as an mp that people were really frustrated and angry with him certainly his comment around not eating the fish if it was poison oh, yeah was that, was, that was a definite couple. misstep yeah, this was, I think there was a few missteps along mm-hmm. there. I think if anybody else was running except Jack, Nick Whalen would be going to Ottawa. Right. And do you think that if... Okay, here's a question that will probably um, be contentious over the Twitter if it, people actually listen to this podcast. But do you think that people if... People listen to us all the time. <laughs> but do you think that if the Liberals had run a different candidate besides Nick, would that candidate have beat Jack? I... I... I'd be hard pressed to know who could could be Jack. I really do see mm. him as you know, as seen as you know, the golden, you know, senior parliamentarian that has a great track record that mm. you know doesn't have bloopers. I mean, I do think a lot of people would have liked to have seen him as premier. Mm-hmm. So it would, yeah. I, I, I mean, I can't envision they would have probably have to swoop somebody in. Yeah. Really high of high caliber and i love the story coming out of the election night cav- cav- uh, coverage that 
Jack's poll uh, numbers weren't coming out because there was this last minute rush mm -hmm. of young people um, in there that <clears throat> they had to close the doors and count. I was like, yes, democracy in action. I yeah. absolutely love that piece, right? Mm -hmm. No, I love Sorry. that. Hearing about youth turnout, hearing about youth engagement in general just makes me, well, and actually on that, let's talk about um, I want to talk about the 25-year-old Inuk woman uh, who won the uh, seat in Nunavut. I think that's amazing. She is fantastic. Yeah. She did a Facebook Live kind of, we did it, we won. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but absolutely glorious. I'm so excited to see mm -hmm. what she's going to do. She was one of the daughters of the boat with right. equal voice. Very cool. Um, and that just shows you too that like there are people out there who are engaged, who are thinking about politics, who are getting engaged with stuff like Daughters of the Vote. I mean, equal voice for all the kind of criticism it's had in the last little while over um, diversity um, of, of, you know, let's just let's just leave it there. Diversity. Um, it does do some good stuff. Right. And that Daughters of the Vote stuff is really, really cool and gets a lot of young women engaged in thinking about politics and thinking that they could do it. And obviously they can. I mean, there are, are an increasing number, I think, of young people who are paying attention to the world um, and paying attention to politics. And maybe that's partly to do with climate change. Um Maybe it's partly to do with kind of the the future of of the world and the future of our economy and the inability for young people to do things that are kind of basic in the past, like buying houses and all that kind of stuff. I think that it's great to hear um, that people are getting involved and thinking about these things and and being taken seriously by voters because there is no reason not to take that chick seriously. She seems hardcore. I'm. I oh, think absolutely. It's gonna be awesome. I, I can listen to her on and on. I absolutely love her. And hey, lots of represent, you know, anytime we get that kind of indigenous representation from the North, mm -hmm. the world, you know, it's like, yes, we need this. We need this diversity. So I, yeah. that, that to me was a real excitement. Um, and of course, Jody Wilson, Rebel, uh, back in as an independent, I think mm -hmm. the first woman independent. Well, and sure. the first 11, or sorry, the first independent that has won a seat in 11 years. So like, I did not think Frank, so I'm a big fan of her. I think she's done a lot of really cool stuff in the last little while. And I'm, I was sorry to see what happened to her in that party, but I did not actually really believe that either her or Jane Philpott would win their seats. Um, and so, you know, I kind of, when they announced that they were going to run as independents, I was like, oh no, how is this uh -huh. going to go? Um, and so I'm happy to see that she won her seat. It shows that her, um, well, it's name recognition is one thing, but that she was also able to get that ground game out there and that she was able to mobilize voters in her riding who care about the issues that she cares about. Um, and so, yeah, so we'll see what happens. My dad has this theory, he texted me that night or the next morning or whatever. His theory is that she will be back in the Liberal Party as leader and running the country in like six years. And I'm like, mm. okay, maybe. I don't know. Anything is possible. Wow, I, I, I like your dad's vision. My dad's got <laughs> a lot of ideas. I won't tell them all to you, but... <laughs> I can't I can't imagine what the first day back in Ottawa will be like mm -hmm. for her staring across at Justin like hey how I do know. you like now right absolutely so there's that um other broad strokes what is going on with the block to me again that was another surprise the surge mm -hmm. from the block mm -hmm. um I felt that that was somewhat unexpected and I didn't really hear a lot of political commentators kind of predicting that was going to happen did i miss something i i found that to be a bit of a shocker well you know it isn't it isn't right so polls show that they were doing okay um but uh i think that we've got to so in explaining or kind of thinking about what happened with the block and, and it's kind of resurgence we've got to think about a few things number one the block of today is not the block of 30 years ago um this is a very different block quebecois this is a a, a party that is closer in policies to the conservative party whereas in the past it was closer in policies to the ndp so it's made a real shift um i think that we need to think about bill 21. i think we need to think about populism I think we need to think about anti-immigration and culture and those kinds of considerations. So in a lot of ways, one could liken the block to the CPC, but it's concentrated in terms of geography, right? And so again, they could play that game. I mean, the CPC, sorry, not the CPC, the PPC, the PPC did shit, right? Which a lot of us were hopeful of that because it's 
you know, a blatantly racist party with a blatantly racist platform. And it, I mean, that's terrible, right? But this kind of underlying populism that we're seeing across the country, including, you know, out West, including out East, including in Quebec, um, I think that is real. And the, the Bloc Québécois was able, I think, to capitalize on that kind of sentiment, um, especially in light of Bill 21 and kind of being... Uh, and, and the way that the rest of Canada has responded to Bill 21, or at least vocally, yes. you know, so feeling again that there's this tension between, OK, Quebec's interests as tied to Bill 21 and as tied to populism and then responding to those, you know, assholes in the rest of Canada who want to tell us how to do things. Right. So I think there's a bit of that underlying a lot of this as well. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean. 32 seats is not a not, not a little amount of seats, right, to have in the in the legislature. And so they are going to be, you know, a block to contend with. Pardon the pun. Um, and so, uh, you know, my puns rarely work out. So I need to really focus on the fact that that one was kind of OK. Uh, so I think that it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, and so it, it feeds into that what you were saying earlier about the country being divided, right, that there is this sense of us versus them all of us have that sense like even look at the reaction that there has been over the last sort of 24 48 hours alberta versus newfoundland suddenly like this is ridiculous right there um, is something there is something to discuss in the home province of newfoundland labrador i mean mm-hmm. facebook pages people speaking right? out the war going on between newfoundlanders who are in alberta you know saying horrendous things about, you know, their own people back here for going wildly liberal. And uh, I I actually found that quite shocking, really. You know, but again, it it is and it isn't, right? Because it goes back to that us versus them. Economic insecurity as uh, fired up by parties and the things that they say as Mm -hmm. channeled through, you know, hate and as channeled through feelings of deservingness, right? So who deserves help? Um, you know, fights over suddenly equalization. Well, equalization is not simple. And there's a reason why some provinces get equalization payments and others don't, right? So Albertans being mad at Quebecois for for not forgetting equalization while they don't. Well, look at the economies and how they work. And are Albertans doing like worse than they were in the past? Probably yes, right? So maybe there's some logic to this. But at the same time, like, you know, it's, it's really difficult to grapple with or manage a country that is this wide and big with different kinds of economies, different kinds of interests, different kinds of of strengths and weaknesses. Um, And I think that it's really easy around the world for us to kind of feed into that us versus them mentality and, you know, decide that our neighbors are not worth helping. Um, And that is worrisome and that is frightening and that is a global trend right now. And so I think that that's something that we have to contend with here in Canada, that we too are assholes just like everyone else. You know, I think you're right, and I think in some ways the speeches, the acceptance speeches of, you know, each one of the leaders and or their acceptance mm-hmm. or non-acceptance speech, they they were clearly divisive, many mm-hmm. of them, and didn't leave you with any hope that mm-hmm. said, thank you, you know, Canadians for, for voting and mm-hmm. speaking your mind. We will work collaboratively. We will find a way yeah. as a government to manage this minority the best that we can. Didn't get, certainly didn't get that out of sheer, like, it's what is this? You know, you're still going on with this politics of hatred and mm-hmm. polarization at, at this point when you've got the most seats that you've had in a very, very long time. So I found, I mean, I found that in, in, incredibly frustrating. So, you know, I was not worried about a minority government and raising my taxes and not getting things done. Now I'm really worried under this minority government about how they're actually going to rule mm. and who's going and who's going to collude with the others. Right. You imagine a- Conservative and the Bloc getting together, and Greens and the, you know, mm-hmm. and he and Liberals. Like, what is going to happen, and are we going to be get any work done because this wide division? Mm-hmm. Division, and you are so right. The, the regional issues are so strong, right? Mm-hmm. So, are we going to be able to get any work done? Do you think? And you know, I'm already hearing, you know, the pundits that you know we'll be having another election before the four years is up because yeah. of. Incredible dynamics. It's totally possible. I mean, minority governments tend to have shorter lifespans than majority governments do. Um, and I think that, you know, with 156 or 57 seats or whatever it was, which is just like 13, 14 shy of the of a majority, 
is a pretty solid minority government, one that, yes. you know, I think that Trudeau can then govern fairly confidently a lot of the time, knowing that depending on the kind of law he's trying to pass, he will be able to convince people from different parties, whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. to, to work with him. I think where it's going to be more challenging is going to be on basic things like budgets, right? So because that's a law or that's a that's the kind of thing that requires... A majority vote, yes. Um, otherwise, the government will fall. So the second that Trudeau goes to introduce a budget, that will be the test of the collaboration, right? Because oh. if the if the different parties want to prop him up and want to keep going and don't want to have an election, they will support it in some manner. Um, and if they don't support it, the government will fall, and there will either be an election at that point, or else they're going to try to cobble together something amongst the other parties, right? So okay. one could imagine a situation where... Um, you know, a combination of the the opposition parties come together to say, well, we can do this better. We're going to follow the government. We're not going to pass their budget and we'll cobble together something and and do something ourselves. Um, Whether that will actually happen or not, I am not going to predict. Interesting, like parallelally. Is that a word, parallelally? You are asking the wrong person. I'm going to call it parallelally, a new word. We have the same kind of thoughts around the minority liberal government provincially in Newfoundland Mm -hmm. and Labrador. What was going to happen when the first budget yep. came down? Were they going to collaborate? Um, and and generally, I remember you even at that time kind of semi-predicting that everybody was too tired and too exhausted yep. and too broke to stand up to fight it, to collapse the government at that time, that nobody had the resources to go through it again and certainly didn't have the public will to, yep. to, to do I it again. And I think that's still true. You know, we're four or five months later, and I absolutely stand by those words, and I mm-hmm. don't see a provincial election happening anytime soon. Um, so I think that the same is possibly true at the federal level, but I think that come two years from now, there, that kind of desire not to have an election and the willingness to, you know, support a government's budget, a government that you obviously hate, right? There's a lot of animosity and I think that polarization across the country is increasing. So that, you know, it kind of means that those on the right are becoming more on the right and those on the left are becoming more on the left, but not even so much in terms of issues, but more in terms of like negative perceptions. So like, you know as partisans of a particular party, we just hate the others more, just like you see in the US, right? The Democrats are super anti-Republican and vice versa, and that they would never want somebody in their family to marry a Republican or a Democrat, heaven forbid, right? And that just tells you that's like, that's a weird thing. That's very, that's very backwards. you know, mm-hmm. and so I could definitely see that kind of thing happening here in Canada as well as we become more set in our ways and as we filter the information that we receive through these lenses of being partisans, um, which we all do. You know, we, we do this. This happens. It's, this is a thing. This is not that I'm, I'm not making this up. And the question is going to be whether or not um, parties are able to um, use that. And I, I mean use in a, in a nefarious kind of way. Like, are they going to exacerbate animosity? Or are they going to try to say, okay, we're Canada. We are not the United States. We do not do things this way. We don't want to polarize. We want to work together. And I think that we're at a, a juncture in our lives where we could, we could, the country could do that, right? Our leaders could bring us together. Um, and the question is whether or not they will. And I don't know. I want to chat with you with the gender lens. But before I do that, there is a lot of talk of two leaders mm-hmm. uh, being booted out. There's been calls for Justin that this wasn't, he didn't bring it, wasn't good enough. And as well as Jagmeet Singh, Mm. there has been calls for that he didn't bring it and maybe that his leadership is in question. Um, I always find this completely ridiculous when someone has like, you know, basically served one round. How do you, you know, and Mm. that's it gone. I mean, how can you really, you know, present yourself as any kind of real leader party in one round unless you make some pretty horrible faux pas. But do you do you think that's just a scaremongering or do you think any of the leaders right now are in jeopardy? Oh, how do I answer this question? What am I really thinking on this? Because I've heard the same being said about Sheer, right? That, you know, so yeah. all we're all questioning all the leaders. And I think that's healthy, right? We should wonder, are yeah. they the right person to be leading up the party? Um, but at the same time, like, does losing an election mean that you shouldn't be the leader of a party? I don't know, because opposition is pretty important, right? So, like, for me, as a person who studies democracy and cares about the health of democracy, I always say that the measure of a good, you know, good government is the size and strength and power of the opposition. So, Agreed. frankly, I'm satisfied right now because this opposition is quite large and quite diverse, and that makes me happy. Um, are, are, 
I think that probably all the leaders are currently questioning what they should do. Do they want to lead? Do they want to, you know, do the job like this? Would they have rather have had a majority and done really, really well? Of course they would. Um, But I think that part of being a leader is leading through good times and bad times. Um, And I also think that part of the reason that we have a minority government right now and part of the reason that Trudeau didn't do as well as he did last time was because of what he didn't do over the last four or five years, right? Uh, And I think there's a lot of folks who are upset with the kind of record of campaign promise keeping. And with the kinds of issues that have come up over the last four years, including scandals, so thinking about SNC-Lavalin, um, the Jody Wilson-Raybould thing, obviously, and Jane Philpott, um, thinking about pipelines, thinking about, you know, in my mind, the only kind of clear promise that was made last time in 2015 that was kept was legalization of marijuana. And like, you can't just be the pot party and think you're going to do well forever, right? So he has this opportunity right now with this minority government to kind of rebuild confidence in him and in his party. There's lots of potential and lots of ways that he can do that. And part of that is going to be collaborating with other legislators in the House of Commons to achieve goals and actually make policy changes that are good for the country and that lead us towards the future and and grapple with some of these large challenges that we're facing right now in Canada, including climate change, including the economy, including, you know, um, issues surrounding how do we deal with homelessness? How do we deal with the fact that young people are not getting um, what they need to be able to buy homes and things like that? Like, I think that these are issues that we have to grapple with seriously um, and that that's Frankly, I mean, climate change is not a partisan issue, or at least it shouldn't be, right? There's, that's an issue that faces all of us. And so it would be great to see them actually collaborate on that issue, because I think that a lot of voters of all political stripes would be satisfied if they saw some, some movement on that issue. Yeah, I agree. So putting a gender lens on this election, yeah. uh, well, uh, I, you know, yes, marginally better. We've got 29% of the House. Right, of 338 seats, 98 mm-hmm. women elected. Yep. Um, so I think we're at 596 women ran in this election, so that's slightly up, if I'm right, here on my numbers crunching. Mm-hmm. And um, 29%, oh my God, here we are still trying to reach for the bottom, mm-hmm. right? That 30%, here we are, increment, and it's like, I am, I am highly frustrated with, you know, oh, it's it's good. We sent m- many more women to the house. It's incremental. It's this, but it you know it's coming, but it's slowly. Now it's rubbish. I mean, literally, the top country for w- women elected is Rwanda. Like we're at fifty four percent. I mean, this is garbage. I'm no longer going to say okay, good. We are still trying to scrape the basement thirty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not re- you know yeah. reaching where our goals are of anywhere near yeah. Paris. I think that's and so we have more women running. Um, we're only slightly up. So that makes me think that we had a lot of women running in non-winnable ridings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I even think about our own home province, but many women that were ran. Um, and you look at some of them, I think many of them were placed in non-winnable ridings. Mm-hmm. I think they were placed in non-winnable ridings without any resources from the federal party. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's kind of, I think that's, that that's still continuing to happen. And parties are not, uh making real you know real constitutional or not upholding their own constitutions and and listening to the research on how you recruit women Mm. acting on it and ensuring that they actually have a chance to win to me it's just more emotional unpaid labor for women Mm. when they do this it just adds to the cacophony of unpaid emotional labor it's like oh we need a woman let's shove her over there Mm -hmm. with the guy that you know the writing that's been conservative for 100 years so Mm -hmm. you know let's not give her any resource but have her out there cheering for the party it's very echoing of what happens to women all the time being used and then saying that they're meeting their targets and i think they really need to be chance you're not meeting your targets if you are just using and abusing of women's labor this is interesting. I mean, it's it's obviously the the what you're saying is a really uh, harsh way of describing what's happening. I'm not saying I disagree with it. I think that, you know, I think it's time to kind of flip the switch, and I think it's time to really make it clear what party's responsibilities are, right? So maybe the time is to kind of 
to change how we talk about women's roles in politics. And this extends to people of color and Indigenous candidates as well, right? So instead of talking about the underrepresentation of women, I think it's time to start talking about the overrepresentation of men and the overrepresentation of white people. Um, yeah. And I think once we do that, I think that things can change. So, you know, I was reading something again on Twitter, of course, um, and somebody was saying, and this is genius, um, somebody was saying, okay, well, I went to my boss and I said, okay, I think that our target for women's representation in this company should be 75% women. And the boss says, whoa, that's crazy. Why would we want to do that? That seems awfully high. And she's like, okay, well, then let's talk about why we have 75% men right now. Because that's exactly the number that she's talking about, right? So we have this overrepresentation of men. Um, and, you know, we talk about the Sheryl Sandberg lean in, but I think the advice has to be lean out. Um, that if you have a candidate that you know, or if you know somebody that it would be excellent, take yourself out of the running and prop up and support that person, right? Um, well, that's so, so controversial, too. That, that, also, that great article by Shannon Proudfoot said mm. it's time to step aside. Exactly. So step aside and let somebody run. Of course, people up in arms to think that, you know, men would have to give up power in order for a Absolutely. Women to first and you, we saw the kind but, of chaos that ensued when we had a panel of five women moderators at the debates, right? Heaven forbid we should have five women moderators. But, like, take a look at the way the election night coverage took place. You know, we bring back a whole bunch of old white guys to come and comment comment on the election outcome. What? Why? We didn't need them. They're retired, right? They were Absolutely. fine. They're, they're perfectly fine guys. But we have a lot of really clever journalists right now who we can just, you know, rely upon instead. So I think that it's time to kind of really think about what we are doing. And I think it's time for men to really kind of do a little bit of soul searching. What? Because it, it's kind of, ego, and we all have this, right? It's kind of egotistical. What makes you think that you are the person to do this when there is somebody else who could do it instead of you? Um, well, when you think about, like, bringing out Peter Mansbridge, uh, Lloyd Robson, I mean, great journalists of their time, mm -hmm. but also, could they themselves as journalists, and I'm sure are mentoring and nurturing up-and-coming journalists, say, hey, not me, but I'm working with this amazing... Absolutely. And I know, know for a uh, fact, like I've heard Rosie Barton say many times that Peter Mansbridge was a great mentor to her. And I think that that's great. So she's already there. They didn't need to have 25 panelists at that election night coverage, frankly. It was a bit chaotic. And so I think that, you know, thinking closely and thinking clearly about what it is that we're signaling when we have to have all these men all the time and, and that parties could do a better job. I mean, so we were talking earlier about, you know, could somebody else have beat Jack Harris or if Jack Harris hadn't run, could an NDP or have won? Well, could the NDP party have won a different riding if Jack, who is so popular and such a state statesman, had run in a different riding and made space for another person to run in St. John's East? Because obviously St. John's East is open to NDP candidates, right? So maybe the NDP could have done a bit more thinking about how they run their elections in this province and how they can actually get more seats and more women simultaneously, right? Because I, I do think that they could have had more seats if they had run Jack somewhere else. I'm just, I'm putting that out there and that will also be contentious, I think. Well, I, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more and, and that happens all the time. But as far as I know, Jack McSee didn't even come to Newfoundland Labrador during the election. No, I think he did come, didn't he? I mean, I'm trying to remember. I definitely saw some photos of him walking down Water Street. Um, Those were earlier ones from when he they? was out at the time, but I'm pretty sure he did not show up during the well, elections. Well, but again, this so this speaks to whether or not this province was in play for a lot of people, right? So, uh, you know, the, there was a lot of, of uh, commentary made about Andrew Shear's like one-hour stopover and hanging out by the airport kind of thing, right? So How ridiculous was that? <laughs> well, obviously, though, they knew that this place was not the place for them. And maybe the same thing is true of Jagmeet, although I swear I remember him being here, but I could be totally be wrong about this. My argument is almost the other way with Jack. I think they figured Jack had it and didn't need any help as a senior parliamentarian so that, you know, Singh didn't need to come out and make a big... And maybe you know, that's true, but again, that speaks to the laziness of the party. Like, I'm not saying that leaders have to be everywhere at all times because they don't. But at the same time, if they could have had more seats, isn't that what they were trying to do? Um, well, look, and they had women running, mm -hmm. you know, federally in most all the seats. So if you look at, you know, um, Anne-Marie Anderson was running. We had a uh, Micheline who you had, on, uh, Greg, who you had on the podcast uh, up in Labrador, you mm -hmm. know, would have yeah. been great for Sean. Leah Movell, you know, running in Avalon, traditional where I ran in the uh, or, uh, in the last election, traditionally conservative, had flipped a liberal. I mean, 
what if, you know, he would have come out and spent some time with some of these, you know, strong women running for his party? Maybe. I mean, I think, too, the problem is partly the ridings that those women ran in, right? Those ridings were all strongholds. And they were, they, I mean... I didn't say this before, but they were never going to win their ridings. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, I'm glad that there were women running in those ridings. I mean, my riding, St. John's East, there were no women. I couldn't vote for one if I wanted to. And so that's a different problem in and of itself. And so, again, like, I think that it's one thing to have women running. It's another thing to have them running in places where they have absolutely no freaking chance of winning. Um, and, you know, again, this speaks to larger questions and more coordination and the NDP frankly did this in this in this election did really well in terms of making an effort to have women candidates running and to have people of color running and you know they were they scored the best of all the parties on these two measures but they also did not win a lot of seats and they also ran a lot of these women and you know people of color in unwinnable writings and that tells you that we have a problem. I, I couldn't agree more. And unless that gets addressed, um, we're never, it's never going to change. We're going to continue to be scratching mm-hmm. at the bottom to become anywhere near the 30%, never mind parity. But again, Absolutely. all of these things, they don't come easily. And unless, you know, unless we start making, you know, massive changes, start having quotas or changing the constitution where there's absolute targets for women in government like Iceland did, it's not going to change. I mean, how long have we been hanging out at this tiny little mark? Yeah. So I think that, you know, we have now, you know, four or five years potentially for parties to, to say something, to do something and to put your money where your mouth is. So are you really the first feminist prime minister? First of all, I question that statement anyway, but if you really are the first feminist prime minister, do something. I really like the way that you did that and flipped that kind of narrative. I think it's really important that we really think that and that organizers, and this should be, you know, food for thought for every campaign manager everywhere. Uh, I want to end on um, back home, Newfoundland, Labrador, just quickly for a second, uh, the amount of women that we were running, and I agree with you, they were in ridings that they couldn't necessarily win. But uh, one thing I have to say is, and I haven't crunched the numbers yet, but I am fairly certain that those women's numbers were a beautiful thing in terms of bringing up voters and yeah. traditional conservative or liberals. I think uh, a lot of those women uh, raised the NDP votes up quite higher than um what was done in the last election. Um, and I, that's one of the things I want to crunch and talk to you about. So mm-hmm. even though, you know, I think it's parties using women, like I said, as their, you know, emotional and, you know, unpaid labor to do this sort of stuff. But I think those women did one hell of a showing and were out there and got some numbers up. So if they can slowly flip the switch, if they can, when they run again in four years, maybe that's the time that we're Mm going to finally start to see some changes. Absolutely. Run those women in competitive ridings where they can get voters motivated. I'm jealous of my colleagues and friends who live across the country who were in those all-women ridings. I would have Mm -hmm. loved to have been in an all-women badass riding like that. But, you know, maybe squad goals, right? One day. Yep, we'll get there. Good talking to you. You too. Talk to you soon. Okay, Okay, bye-bye. Welcome to Phone a Feminist. This is where we ask them in eight minutes to tell us what they're reading, what they're working on, and how they're resisting. Okay, super excited. We've got our next, our Phone a Feminist, um, and this feminist is a total badass. Um, I'm really excited to, to talk to Amy Norman. She's a proud Inuk woman, born and raised in Happy Valley Goose Bay in Labrador. She's a land protector, a passionate activist, a girl guide leader, and a musician. She also makes memes under the handle Iyotikak on Instagram, focusing on Indigenous issues, politics, and humor through an Inuit lens. And you can spell that at I-J-O-T-I-K-A-K. Totally worth following. We'll go to her now. Hi there, it's Amanda Bittner calling. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. We're really, really, really excited. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited too. Um, the way that our phone of feminist normally works is that we call one of our favorite badass people doing really cool stuff, and obviously you're doing some really cool stuff, and we ask them three questions. 
We ask them uh -huh. what they are currently reading, what they are currently doing, and how they are currently resisting. I'm currently in Toronto. I uh, got invited to a film festival, actually. I make, um, make memes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are all on my Instagram. My handle is Iotihak, um, so I-J-O-T-I-K-A-K. And that's the uh, Labrador Institute word for to laugh at somebody. <laughs> Which I thought was an appropriate name for like a meme page. So I do a lot of like political memes, um, memes about like indigenous issues, uh, Inuit specific memes, that kind of thing. And a few months back, I made this like parody video of Lil Nas X's song Old Town Road. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it was super fun. It was kind of just like a one-off, like, I thought it was hilarious, because um, my friend had tweeted some lyrics that she kind of came up with about um, taking your auntie to the old bead store. <laughs> and and I just was like, I need to turn this into something. So I came up with some lyrics. I made a little video. You know, it kind of blew up on Twitter a little bit. And then I get this message from the artistic director of the Imaginative Film Festival. And she was kind of like, hey, you should submit this. Like, oh, um, sure. So I did. And I kind of like didn't think anything of it. And then months later, like, here I am. I'm going to have a video like world premiere at the Imaginative Film Festival. So, yeah, I'm in Toronto for that. That's exciting. That's very cool. Yeah, congratulations. What an awesome, <laughs> awesome opportunity, hey? It's so, so cool. And like very unexpected. <laughs> I'm really excited to see, I guess, the crowd's reception. It's being screened on the very last day of the film festival, um, almost like directly before the closing gala. So I feel like there's gonna be a lot of people there. It's gonna be you know, quite the event, a bit nervous, but yeah, it's gonna be fun. Very cool, very, very cool. What about reading? Are you finding a lot of time to read these days? I definitely don't have as much time to read as I would like. Um, I am currently rereading Tanya Tagak's Split Tooth. Mm. I, it's just super powerful and I always get like really struck by it and I have to like really take a lot of time to kind of digest her words. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just so beautiful, especially I find I really love the, um, there's like little poetry sections in between her kind of uh, short story sections if you haven't read the book or if your listeners haven't read the book. Um, anyway, the, the poetry is what gets me. She just has such a like whoa, way with words that like I don't even, I can't describe it. She, <laughs> she kind of like tears my guts out. She's amazing. The book is amazing. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely make sure that our listeners uh, know that they need to read that ASAP because it sounds, it's on my list. It's one that I haven't read yet, but every time I go to the bookstore, I look at it and I'm like, can you afford this yet? And then each time I, I end up not leaving with a book, but it's on my, it's on my almost immediate to read list. I'm very excited about it. Oh, definitely check it out. It's so beautifully written. And I hear she, she narrates the audio book of it. Oh, does so she? I really want to like yeah i really want to pick that up too because like to hear her speak her own words like she's such an amazing musician and artist and she does everything with such like you know intensity and power so i feel like hearing her narrate her own audiobook like that's the next thing i want to do after i finish rereading it this time <laughs> that would be incredible yeah um so what about resisting how are you currently resisting so i'm very i'm still very involved with the labrador lamb protectors and the uh, resistance with the land protectors like takes a lot of different forms right now um one of the avenues for me i'm personally going to start looking more at gull island mm -hmm. um so that is the uh you know supposed second bigger mega dam that they want to build upstream from muscat falls uh, there's a lot of talk that like, oh, it's definitely going ahead, you know, people seem to think that it's, you know, definitely, you know, it's a given, it's going to happen, there's nothing we can do about it, which uh, frustrates the heck out of me, and I really want to start kind of like looking into the future to see how we can, you know, prevent this from happening, because we, 
you know, we've worked so long at Muskrat Falls, and it's already, you know, however, like, 99% built. Um, the reservoir is flooded. There's a lot of, like, kind of feeling of defeatism in terms of the fight against Muscat Falls. Um, and I think, personally, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to kind of channel that maybe negative energy into looking at how to stop Gull Island, because it, it can't happen. We can't let that happen. There's no possible scenario in my mind where our province has like a prosperous future, where indigenous rights are respected and Gull Island goes forward. It's not an option. So I'm looking at ways to resist that. Um, I have some tricks up my sleeve. I don't want to say too much <laughs> in case <laughs> some of the things don't like, go uh, according to what I have in mind. But that's, yeah, in general, I'm looking at Gulf Island and seeing what I can do there, kind of from all avenues, whether that's like, um, you know, more bureaucratic, like behind the scenes, paperworky activism and raising awareness, or whether that's like in-person occupations, who knows? We'll see, but that's what I'm looking at. That's one thing I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also, I have the great opportunity this coming week to speak um, on a panel with the Yellowhead Institute. So they are uh, this indigenous rights and policy group based at Ryan, Ryerson University, and they're hosting a panel called Land Back. So it's um, four young indigenous folks uh, myself included, and we're all just kind of talking about um, land and water reclamation and uh, indigenous rights and sovereignty and how it relates to like land use. So um, part of my resistance to Muskrat and Gull Island is going to be, you know, speaking on these larger platforms uh, in different places, like here in Toronto, and spreading the word about what's happening and, and the fight that we have as Labrador Land Protectors back home and yeah, sharing that with the good folks thanks to Ryerson University and the Yellowhead Institute. That's very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Labrador Land Protectors? Like how did you guys start doing what you're doing? Sure, yeah. So the Labrador Land Protectors kind of um, evolved naturally from the kind of boiling resistance to the Muskrat Falls project in the fall of 2016. So the Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Project had all these issues. There were like protests and uh, different actions happening. Um, there were a group of people who occupied the work site that shut down the camp for four days. Um, and from that, that's kind of like how the Labrador Land Protectors as a collective was kind of formed. Um, so that core group of people who occupied, plus a lot of like other allies and supporters, um, ever since then, October 2016, have, you know, continued to, to come together and to do rallies and to do petitions um, and other actions like that to basically do whatever we can to, you know, fight the Muscat Falls project and all its faults. So whether we're, you know, advocating for clearing the reservoir of all vegetation to uh, mitigate methyl mercury contamination. Um, you know, we're, we're doing things like that. There's some folks who actually are um, meeting with, you know, environmental lawyers of the northeastern United States, and they're working on ways to, like, prevent Muscat Falls power from being sold. So there's no, you know, there's no buyer for the power. So there's a lot of different ways that our group is kind of taking action. Um, but, yeah, generally speaking, this collective that came from the resistance in 2016. Yeah, very cool. And I know that a, a good chunk of the province is currently thanking you for all the work that you've done. Um, and I think we'll thank you in advance for the work that you're planning to do with Gall Island, um, even if it is top secret stuff in your sleeve right now that you've got <laughs> planned. Yeah, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But I, yeah, I, you know, I just really don't think Gull Island um, is a viable option. I think the entire province would agree with that statement. And the fact that, you know, Stan Marshall is trying to go on the, the OCM and say it's a done deal, uh, I don't think we should get that, like, sit back and accept that. So I think all of us should do what we can to prevent that. Um, and I know I will be, so, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this with us today. 
really good luck um, having your film screening. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. And uh, we'd love to have you come on to talk on the show again, perhaps more about the Labrador Land Protectors and your art and everything else. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks Thanks for for listening, feminists. You've been listening to The Academic and the Activist with Amanda Bittner and Jenny Wright. Produced in St. John's, Newfoundland at CHMR 93.5 FM. Our theme music is Gravity by Amelia Curran. We'd like to give a shout out to Hans Rollman for producing the show, to Robin Pike for designing our graphics, and to the Gender and Politics Lab at Memorial for help with research, production, and prep. If you want to get in touch, email us at theacademicandtheactivist at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Thank you.